Old Man Winter here. If I had it my way, it would stay winter all year long. Short days, wind chill, black ice and a good polar vortex. Oh, <laughs> heaven. Wait, is it getting warm in here? Your cold snap is over, Old Man Winter. Spring has arrived. Spring. Spring is here, which means it's the perfect time to get away in the Hyundai you've always wanted. Visit the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event, where you can get great deals on all of our award-winning Hyundai models, like the tech-filled Tucson and Kona, as well as the spacious Palisade. Enjoy wherever you go with the peace of mind that comes with America's best warranty and three years or 36,000 miles of complimentary maintenance. But hurry in. These deals won't last. Add more joy to your journey at the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Now get 0% APR or up to 1,500 bonus cash on the Hyundai Tucson. Now, during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Offers end soon. Call 562-314-4603 for details. When it's happening on the bench, you're, I was in shock. Like, what? Wait, what's going on? He's not, what? What the f*** is, what are you doing? And still doesn't bat an eyelash. Fine, Pete, get in the game. Thank goodness Tony Kukos makes the shot. That, that helps buffer everything. So did that really just happen? Did Scotty say no? He, he, he quit on us? So what did you make in the dock when he said, yeah, well, if I had to do it all over again, I'd do the same thing? I was disappointed with that. What's going on, everybody? Hope you're all happy and healthy and safe. And welcome to episode 129 of the Jim Rome Podcast. Unlike the Last Dance documentary, there will be plenty more episodes of the pod after this, but we are down to the final two installments of Mike's Doc, and I want to stay with it and get even more perspective. So my guest this week is a three-time NBA champ. He is a former teammate of MJ's. He is Bill Wennington. Bill was there for the second three-peat in Chicago and currently works with the Bulls as a broadcaster right now. So nobody is more plugged into this team then and back in the day than Bill Wennington. So... Let's get to it. Episode 129 of the Jim Rohn Podcast with Bill Wennington starts right now. Bill, it is so great to visit with you. Before I talk to you about The Last Dance, let me first get your thoughts. How are you and your family doing in this pandemic? It's such an unusual time. Uh, Very unusual. We're we're doing as well as can be expected. I, I love my house, but I've been in a little bit too much. The good news is, Romy, we're in Chicago, so the weather hasn't been good. Uh, last couple of days started to warm up, so it's getting a little bit harder to stay in the house, but we're all safe and healthy right now. Good, good. Glad to hear it. All right, so, Bill, obviously you lived it. You lived it. You were a part of that second three-peat, but I'm curious, what's it been like for you to watch the last dance along with the rest of the country the last several weeks? Oh, it's been phenomenal. It's a lot of fun going down memory lane. It, it looks like I've, I've, I've taken these excellent home videos. <laughs> uh, that I get to watch on national TV every every Sunday night. So it, it's been a lot of fun. It's, I think it's been very accurate uh, and a, a great tribute to Michael and well-deserved. I mean, he was, he was a great teammate, made us all better on the floor. Uh, yeah, he was pushing us hard, and it was difficult at times, but he made us better. And obviously, when you win three championships like that, and for Michael and Scotty, obviously six, uh, it makes it worth it well worth the while so bill if we jump right into this like if you had to guess why is michael the way he is for instance and as somebody who played the game at a really high level i think you can speak to this is it nature 
or is it nurture? Like, is he hardwired for it? I mean, do you see anything in Michael's background that would suggest that he would turn into the killer that he is? Like, I'm sure getting cut from his high school team pissed him off, but not to that extent. How do you explain the kind of rocket fuel that this guy's run on his whole life? Well, one, he talked about it early. I think just having older brothers beating on him and challenging him to be better in his life at, at basketball and at sports, you kind of get used to competing and, and trying to find ways to win at a young age. And he obviously found a formula with the Bulls. And you forget, we're talking about you know Michael Jordan winning championships. He was in a league seven years before that, and he had many accolades, uh, scoring titles and de- defensive titles before that. And honestly, once you get a taste of winning and what it's like to be at the top, you want that again and again. He found a way to do it in a formula that worked for him, but he knew that he had to have the 11 guys on his team playing with him be at their best as well. And he figured that he was doing the work. He was just going to push everyone else to do the work. But it's also twofold. One, he was looking for motivation for himself because it is hard to stay that motivated that long. And, And trust me, when I say he was motivated, he was motivated every single practice. Our practices every day were like games. There was no easy practice unless it was a literal, and when I say literal, I mean a literal walkthrough where Phil just said, we're going to walk in and just walk through stuff, and that's all we did. If, once we got in for any kind of practice where there was tape on anyone's ankles, it was on. So, like, you mentioned the other 11 guys, and there's, like, a culture to this thing, right? Like, you have to match his intensity. You have to match his desire. What happens then, Bill, for instance, if you get drafted by the Bulls or you get traded to the Bulls and you're just not wired like that? You're not that guy. Like, you don't have that kill or be killed mentality. You don't have any kind of chip on your shoulder. You're just a really good dude. Like, say, correct me if I'm wrong, but say you're Scotty Burrell. You know, like, what can you do? Is there a switch that you can just throw to find that intensity? And by the way, not for a night or two, but every single day and every practice, if you're not like that, what do you do once you get there? Well, you have to push yourself. And, and I'm going to be honest with you, Scotty was the, great, the, the perfect guy for that situation. He had so much talent, and, and we, knew, we all knew we needed him, but Michael knew he needed him especially. And Scotty, uh, Michael saw a couple things in Scotty that he didn't think Scotty took it quite so seriously or wasn't quite 100% every day and made sure that when he wasn't, he was pushing him and trying to get him to achieve that level because Michael wanted to know if he could rely on you to do the right thing in a game. When you had your moment, were you going to be there for him because he wanted to win and he knew he needed us to win? So Scott Burrell was good because he was able to take it and, and analyze it and make his game better where he was able to compete at that level. But, it was, I mean, it was relentless at the time. And you, and you saw it on the video. He, he was on him. So uh, it was great. But he, Michael was on everyone. It wasn't just Scott. It was, it was everyone at one time or another. But once Michael trusted you, as Steve Kerr said, your relationship changed. And he trusted you. He'd pass you the ball and expect you to do the right thing. And as long as you had that trust – you, you were in, but just because you had it once didn't mean you could lose it, though. You had, you had to stay attentive all the time. So, Bill, help me with this. We discussed this on my program during the week, but I, I don't know the answer to it, and you can help me with this. Mike got pretty emotional when discussing his leadership style last week at the end of Episode 7. He said, quote, when people see this, they're going to say, well, he wasn't really a nice guy. He may have been a tyrant. Well, that's you because you never won anything. But then, I mean, he choked up, and he stopped the taping like, you played alongside him. You practiced alongside him. Why do you think in that moment he got that emotional discussing his mentality? 
I, I think his times have changed. I mean, I'm the same age as Michael. He's, he's a month and a half older than I am. So we grew up in the same you know, era where coaches were hard. My high school coach was hard on me, uh, pushing me, trying to motivate me. I was played with the Canadian Olympic team where coaches were yelling at you, screaming at you. Things are different than they were today. So you see the way things are today, and you know it was very different back then. I mean, we, we could go back and talk about Bobby Knight. How long would Bobby Knight last coaching in today's college game? He wouldn't. No one would put up with that. But that was the style of coaching. That was what Michael learned, and, and he found out that that's how he needed to thrive and how he needed to motivate us to play well. Is, is it the only way? No. I was fortunate at St. John's. Luke Conasecker told us there was more than one way to skin a cat. I know that doesn't sound great, but there's more than one way to get things done. But his way worked, and he was able to motivate the 11 guys around him to play their peak performance night in and night out and win six championships. See, I get that. I understand that. And I'm the same age as you. And I remember those days, covering those days. I remember talking to Steve Kerr when he was on that team. I I know exactly what you're saying. What I'm kind of getting at, what I'm trying to figure out is why did he get emotional in that moment discussing that? Like, did that take a greater toll on him than maybe we know? Why do you think that moment was hard for him if you had to guess in discussing I, it? If, if I had to guess, probably because he's looking at saying, yeah, maybe I was a little hard on these guys because he liked us. It, and, and you're only seeing that. You're not seeing what it was like after practice in the locker room, in the training room, where we're joking around and we're going at each other like guys do in a locker room and we're kibitzing and busting balls and, and having fun. Michael was great at that, and he was, all of us were part of it. And those are the things that you remember. Yeah, it was tough playing, and he, yeah, he got on guys at different times. and different, you know, Obviously, he punched Steve early, early on when Steve first got there, and he elbowed different guys at different times and was trying to see what you have. What, you, what are you made of? Are you going to be there? And when you look at it for what it's worth, when you just see it and you just take that away from everything else, yeah, it looks kind of tough. And maybe he was thinking, yeah, maybe I was a little bit tough on guys. But honestly – I love him more for it. Yeah, he made me a better player, and I got to be part of something absolutely great. And because because he was there and challenging me to be at my best every single day, and it's phenomenal. But for him, maybe retrospectively looking back, maybe he thought eh, it was a little bit hard. But in my opinion, it was well worth it. Yeah, I appreciate your thoughts on that. You know, he when he talked about punching Steve Kerr in the dock, it was interesting. You could tell that he he was concerned. He was upset about it. He said he immediately went looking for Kerr. He said, "quote." I punched the fucking littlest guy on the team. Like, you could tell he was really concerned about that. And then Charles Barkley, I mean, a guy that we all love. I think I speak for most people when I say that. Chuck did say, Bill, in a radio interview this week, that Mike only bullied guys that he knew wouldn't fight back. Is that fair? I mean, what do you make of that comment? No, I I don't think that's fair. I think guys were fighting back in their their own way. And it all depends on what you're doing. Like, if you're at a verbal verbal argument with Michael, you fight back and you do your best. There are, there are ways to do it, and, and most guys did. Some guys backed down and didn't fight back. Uh, but that, in Michael's eyes, was a sign of weakness because, and he said it, what are you going to do in a game? If you can't handle me on you, how are you going to handle Reggie Miller, Patrick Ewing, uh, or Shaquille O'Neal, Kobe Bryant in games when, they, when they're talking to you and, and busting your chops in a game? And that's what he wanted to know because, in Michael's mind, it was all about winning. And he was trying to get us to be the best that we could be, albeit selfishly because he wanted to win, but he was carrying us along with him in doing so. Bill, how about this? Set the record straight on this because, like, the most unbelievable thing, it's almost laughable, but 
did he really deny Horace Grant food on a plane if he didn't play well? I mean, did that really happen? <laughs> I, I, I don't know because Horace wasn't there when I was there, so that was before before uh, my time. Uh, but I would not think that that's uh, unbelievable. I, I could see him doing it and, and, and maybe starting off in a jokey way, but if, the, if it escalated a little bit, it could be serious. <laughs> That is funny. I, I mean, I guess I could see it. I, I could see him saying, hey, man, hey, no, Horace, you didn't earn that food. You, you're not going to eat that food. And Horace laughing it off. And Mike saying, no, I mean that, Horace. You're not eating tonight. But, yeah, it's kind of funny. <laughs> I think it's kind of funny. It, it, I mean, guys, guys are guys. And we're challenging each other all the time. And, and there's competitions going on. So it, it was fun. And it, that's something, again, I wasn't there, so I don't know. It could have started off kind of lightly as a joke, but then comments were made, and all of a sudden it becomes serious. So it, it, it was good. But, I mean, Horace, Horace was great for the Bulls, obviously winning three championships, and his role was huge in those first three. So I, I know they all got along, and, and of course you have your moments. You have your moments in every team. Every team I've been on, there have been moments uh, and, and fist fights. And, that, and that's the funny thing is, oh, my God, there was a fight. He punched someone. That happens and, and, a lot more than you think, especially back in the, in the 80s and 90s. It happens on every team. And, in fact, my, my feeling is, Bill, that like this is, we're seeing what we're seeing, right? We're seeing what they're all letting us see. I have to think it was worse than what I'm seeing because, frankly, although I wasn't there, it doesn't seem that horrible. It seems like what you'd expect on a team. You've got a bunch of alphas. You have the ultimate alpha. He's super competitive. He's going to push his teammates. He's going to talk a little junk. I mean, it doesn't really live up to the hype of, like, tyranny. It doesn't seem that horrible. Of course, I wasn't living it, but it doesn't seem that bad. I mean, was it worse than it's being portrayed? No, I think it's, it's pretty accurate, it was, but it was just every day. Right, and and that's and that's what you forget. I mean, dripping water is not bad unless it's dripping on you every day. Good point. And and all day long, so it, it builds up. But I'm I'm gonna be honest with you, that team, the chemistry and the makeup of that team mentally was phenomenal. And I think that uh, Phil Jackson was the perfect coach for melding all those egos together and keeping everyone on that team uh, on the same page, fighting for the same goal, which was to win basketball games and making us all. A, understand and he said this several times no one person on the team their role is not more important than another so michael Porton, michael jordan is just important as you know steve kerr bill wennington or rusty larue at the end of the bench because you all have a role and if the team isn't performing at 100 percent at all times we have a weakness and we all felt that we all felt that we were a vital part of the team yes we all knew that michael was going to win the game for us and we were there because and for michael but we had to do our job every day and Michael was really the enforcer. He was the guy that was making sure that we were up to task every day. Yeah, I'm blown away by the chemistry. I mean, I, I understand that Phil has a lot to do with that, and Phil deserves a lot of credit. But at the same time, you guys, when you come out of college, you're all used to being the man. Everybody's got to fall in line. Everybody's got to accept a role. And when you have success, obviously, Bill, as you know, people say, well, what about me? When, when do I get credit? When do I get paid? This team had amazing chemistry. Everybody seemed to really like each other. They picked each other up. How do you explain that on that team? It's just a very mature team, and, and that's where you do give got to give <clears throat> Jerry Krause credit for getting the right guys in there and, <clears throat> and Phil Jackson able to mold guys into specific roles. You saw Scottie Pippen when Michael first retired. That, that Bulls team won 55 games, and I was there, and that was the first year. No one picked the Bulls to win 50 games, uh, even 40 games at that time. They thought we were just going to be below 500 without Michael. But Scottie was a real leader, and, and – led that team differently than Michael, was still hard on us, but he was more of the 
nurturing kind of leader as opposed to the in-your-face, uh, kick-your-butt leader. And we ended up winning 55 games, a- as it was. But when Michael comes back, he has to take a back seat and understand that the team doing better is, in the long run, better for him. And that's what we all figured out. And Phil taught us all that and got us all to, to buy into taking a lesser role where maybe if we're on another team, we could do more, uh, maybe score more, get more shots, and do different things. But winning is everything, and, and he got us all to buy into that, especially Michael and Scotty at the top. So what were you thinking when he when he came back to that first practice and then all of a sudden it seemed like this might be a thing like, oh, man, he's coming back. I would imagine the dynamic had changed, the culture had changed, Scotty was on top, Scotty led in a different way, as you point out. Were you thinking, oh, man, this is going to be amazing, Mike's coming back? Were you like, oh, damn, what is this going to be like? Oh, <clears throat> everything was amazing. And no one wanted to talk about it because he came back the first day he practiced with us, no one really knew. I'm sure Phil and maybe management knew a little bit more, but the rest of us didn't know yet because it wasn't 100%. But he had practiced with us before, and through the thing, he's practiced with us. He was down in Golden State, and he practiced uh, with Golden State. I was talking to Chris Mullen. He'd been there and and used his, his shoes and stuff and played. But when he came back the second day and started doing all the drills, I remember looking at Steve Kerr. And we both kind of gave ourselves like the hairy eyeball, like something's different, something's going on right now. But no one wanted to say it out loud because obviously if he comes back, things are going to get a lot better really quick because that, that team was struggling and we didn't want to jinx it. And then a couple of days later he said, you know, they come back and say, yeah, he's trying. We're going to see what it is. Keep it on your hat as long as you can. But eventually it gets out and everyone knows about it. But it was exciting because you think what he brings to the table and what he can do for a team now, Having said that, I was a little bit concerned, having been around the block a few times, knowing that it's different when you add a player of that caliber to your team. Things got to change. The spacing changes. The timing changes. The focus of your offense changes a little bit. And you have to adjust to that. It's a lot different playing with a superstar like that than than not with him. So this this is where I I bring in my Allen Iverson quote. Yeah, Michael Jordan, Allen Iverson, Scotty, they don't need to practice because they're that good. The problem is, I need to practice with them so I know how to get out of the way in time and make and make them better and, and, and use the spacing on the floor. And I was just concerned that we didn't have enough time to really get a handle on that. And as it turns out, and Michael, after not being in the game for so long, and he saw it, he'd been playing baseball for a year and a half. What's his body going to be able to handle, especially when he got deeper into the playoffs? Right, right. What a great analogy that is. Now, I would imagine, Bill, you can't go a day without somebody saying, what was it like? What was it like to play with Mike? i got a different question. What was it like to play with Dennis? What was that like? I loved it. Right. You know, Romy, this this is funny. You know, obviously, my mother loves me, and I was her little darling my whole life. But Dennis comes to the team, and... He's a great character, and my mother sees him. Then she gets to meet him and, and talk to him a little bit. And She calls me up the next day, and she goes, Billy, you know I love you, but Dennis Rodman is my favorite bull. Right, <laughs> and, right, amazing. She just loved his character and his spirit. And you know what? He was a great guy. As a teammate, he was phenomenal. He wanted to win. He's one of the most generous people you you could ever meet. would give you the shirt off his back if it was you know 20 below zero and he was outside and you needed it, he'd give it to you. Uh, very generous, and he wanted to win. And people don't understand this, how smart he was at basketball and how he really understood the game and the homework he did and the studying he did on the game. Uh, what they do remember is his persona that he kind of created to market himself off the, off the court, the, the books, the wedding dresses, the boas, 
the people he surrounded himself with, the, the oddities that were going on. And that's what most people remember, but they forget how good he really was and what a great defender he was and how versatile he was. I mean, he was six foot nine in sneakers on a good day. You know, you're looking at a guy six foot eight leading the league in rebounding, what was seven, eight years in a row, and, and, help, and, and the defense he could play. You go back and look at the Bulls. We could play small, and he could guard Shaquille O'Neal or Patrick Ewing at six foot eight and do as good a job as anyone else could in the NBA at the time. So just a, a great guy to play with. And honestly, when you went out with him at night, it was a lot of fun to be around him. Not necessarily because of what Dennis was doing, but what the people that he attracted and, and came around him and the tattoos that people wanted to show us in uh, and, and body piercings, uh, unbelievable. You know, I'm so glad to hear you answer it like that, Bill. I'm not surprised at all because I, having spent some time with Dennis back in the day, he one, he's got a huge heart. He's got an enormous heart. Like, he's a kind guy at his heart. And, you know, you kind of answered a question I was going to ask you. I was going to say, is it me? Like, am I out of line? Is it just hyperbole? Because I think, you know, excuse the word, but this guy's a fucking genius. Like, he's a savant. He's a basketball savant. I was going to say to you, am I wrong or does that sound about right? But it's true, right? I mean, the guy was brilliant, and he could guard anybody one through five on the floor. The guy could do almost anything. You're absolutely right. He, one night was great, and Terry Armour used to write for the Chicago Tribune, and this is back in the 90s, and we used to go out, and Terry was a great guy, and we'd be around. And one night I came in after a game. We're staying in Miami, and uh, Dan Marino had an establishment right across from the hotel we stayed at. So ended up going up there. It was about 10, 10.30 at night, went up there, and, Dennis was in the back holding court. They had a private room in the back, and Dennis is in there, and he's got Tony Kukoc, Johnny Red Kerr, the late Johnny Red Kerr, Bolton announcer, and Terry Armour is with Dennis. And we're all just hanging out, talking. It's a quiet night, kind of calming down as he's winding down. And Terry's talking to Dennis, and he's grilling him just about questions and basketball and defense and uh, what do you do when the ball's over here and this guy's doing it? And he's like, well, it depends if this guy's there and this guy's on the floor. And he's, and he's just answering. And Tony Kukoc and Red Kerr and I are kind of over talking. And every now and then we jump into conversation a little bit and talk. But the next day, Terry Armour came up to me and goes, I did not know how smart that man was. He is absolutely brilliant in basketball and what he knows about angles, spacing, how guys fatigue while they're playing where they shoot the ball from at the beginning of the game as opposed to when they're tired and how the ball trajectory goes and comes off the rim. He goes, it was absolutely amazing and mesmerizing talking to him. And that's Dennis. He got it. He understood how to play and worked at his craft and perfected it. And that's why he was so good at, at rebounding but also playing defense and, and understanding defensive concepts. Dude, it's so unselfish and so selfless as well. You know, and Bill, it seems to me like it's very clear watching the doc what you guys – thought of Scotty, how much you thought of him, how much you all respected him, how much you all admired him. So, you know, it brings me to the obvious thing, Game 3, second-round series against the Knicks. When he doesn't come off the bench for that final play and you see that's playing out and you see that's happening, what's the first thing that goes through your mind? And then what did you think when that started to sink in exactly what had happened? Well, when it's happening on the bench, you're, I was in shock. Like, what? Wait, what's going on? He's not, what? And you're like, oh, my God. And you're like, you know, you're thinking, what the, what the fuck is, what are you doing? And Phil doesn't bat an eyelash. Fine, Pete, get in the game. And it is what it is. And thank goodness Tony Kukush makes the shot. That that helps buffer everything. So, but now we're going down the locker room, and you know, you're kind of thinking, did that really just happen? Did Scotty say no? He he, he quit on us. Didn't go. But 
it really was handled perfectly. And you could see in the doc that Bill Cartwright was already talking to Scotty on the bench while it was going on. And by the time we got to the locker room, Bill Cartwright stood up right away and started talking and gave a, a talk that was one of the best I've ever heard in my life. And it was pointed at Scotty. How could you do this? And Bill was emotional. He was crying. And, and Scotty got choked up. And, and when Bill finished, Scotty stood up and, <clears throat> and apologized. A sincere uh, apology that was heartfelt. And he looked us all in the eyes and said, you know what? Uh, I thought I was bearded in the game. I got carried away. I was upset. Uh, I let my emotions get in the way. I'm sorry. It'll never happen again. And in our eyes, that was it. We're a band of brothers. We're, we're teammates. We love each other. We fight together. And, and Scotty made a mistake. And you know what? He was contrite, and he, he knew he made it, and he admitted it, and he apologized. So for us as players, it was over. And right after Scotty did that, Phil was standing in the background. Phil steps up to the forefront and said, you know what? That's enough said. Practice tomorrow at 10 o'clock. This is over. And for us, it was. But unfortunately, now you've got to deal with the media. And they're coming in and they're, and they're blowing up. Not that they're blowing up. It was a big event. It was, it was big. When that happens, when any player quits on their team and doesn't go in, that's a big event. But as far as our family and our house, we had our house back in order right after it happened in the locker room when we hit the showers. But now we had to relive it. And we're still talking about it 22 years later, 12, 25 years later, uh, because it's a big, it is a big event. But as far as we were concerned, it was over. Scotty was back on track, and he came back in the next game and, and was playing great again. So uh, it was over that quick. But unfortunately, we have to live with the consequences uh, of our actions, and that's one that's uh, going to be brought up for a long time. You know, I appreciate that response, and I, I could see where Scotty would own that and say, hey, look, that was a big mistake. I'm really sorry. I thought I was bigger than the team. I thought I'd been disrespected. It will never, ever happen again. And then the family says, that's good. That's fine. So what did you make then in the dock when he said, yeah, well, I, it was a mistake. I wouldn't know. Actually, what he said was, I wish it had not happened, but if I had to do it all over again, I'd do the same thing. That yeah, seemed, well, that I, seemed I, strange. I was disappointed with that. And, and here he had an opportunity just to kind of put this all behind him. And all he had to do, if, if you think about it, if, all he had to do is say, I would have handled it differently. And really, what does that mean? It means he could have done exactly the same thing, but then added a few adjectives at the end of it. So that's handling it differently. But that would appease everybody. You kind of knew it was bad. And, and so I was disappointed in Scott because I love Scott. He's my favorite Bulls teammate. He was great. Uh, he was, again, he was accountable to us all the time. He was great in the locker room. He was a phenomenal player on the floor uh, during those times when Michael was playing. I believe he was the second best player in the NBA and did tremendous things for us. And I don't think we'd be where we were without, <clears throat> without Scotty on the floor, but uh, that, that did disappoint me. And I was a little surprised that he said that in the documentary. I think you're right, Bill. I think that America generally is pretty forgiving, especially of celebrities and athletes. If you say you're sorry and you mean it, people definitely will forgive you, especially. And, he, and Scotty's come off so well, and he should. He should. Scotty was such an amazing player, and has come off really well in the dock. I thought that was a little disappointing. What do you, like, when you, and I really appreciate your time. I'm almost, I'm almost done here. Like, if this thing had gone another year, Bill, if you had somehow kept it together, what would have happened or had everybody kind of hit the wall and had it run its course? Like if the last dance was not the last dance and you had another shot to go again, what do you think would have happened? You're looking at all the bad stuff. So you're looking at Dennis starting to go a little bit rogue, missing a little bit more practices, uh, Scotty's injuries and his back getting a little bit, little bit worse. You know, everyone's a year older. 
uh, you know, things, injuries are starting to creep up on guys in different places. You wonder. But the one thing we did have going for us the next year, if we did sit together, it was the lockout year. So we didn't actually start playing until January. So if everyone had another three, four months off, I think that might have helped us age-wise. But everything does have a shelf life. Father time is undefeated. We're all going to get older. Our bodies break down. Uh, things happen. So uh, for me to come out and say, yeah, we would have definitely won another one, I, I don't know if that's a fair statement. Could we have won another one? Uh, yes, we could have. And I think the lockout would have helped us do that. Uh, but, you know, you, you have to, as you get older, you have to get luckier and luckier with father time and injuries, and everyone has to stay healthier. And uh, the way I like to say it today in the NBA is, you know, you take the best team in the league. They're 100%. Uh, and if they're playing 100%, they're hard to beat. But if they're dropped down and they're playing 75% and another team is playing 80%, they could beat them. Uh, the Bulls at that point would have had to play much closer to 100% every single night, where the three years before that, we could get away some nights playing 60% and still win. So, finally, I would imagine there are not too many towns where it's better to be a pro athlete, much less a championship-caliber athlete, much less part of one of the greatest dynasties ever than it is Chicago. That is an amazing town anyway, but really a great town to be an athlete, much less a championship athlete. What's it like, for instance, to be Bill Wennington, three-time world champion in Chicago, even today? Uh, it's, it's a lot of fun. It, it's you know, it's different because young people don't know. You know, yeah, they know who Michael is. They they know a little bit about Scotty, and and they'll know about uh, Dennis. But the rest of the guys, they don't really know. So, so as time goes on, with young people, I'm just a tall guy. But the people that are around that are, I'm gonna I'm gonna go age group thirty and up. They all remember, and I get stopped in the streets, and people recognize you. But the the younger people, they don't understand. I'm just another tall guy with a beard right now. Uh, walk, walking around. So, but it, you know, Chicago is a phenomenal sports town, and it has been absolutely fantastic. I've made my home here. Uh, my wife, and my son, we all we all live in the Chicago area, so it's been fantastic, and I can't complain. And uh, we like to say the weather is cold in the winter time, and it keeps the unwanteds out. <laughs> Listen, you're selling yourself short. You're not just a tall guy with a beard. You're a tall guy with an exceptional beard. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, it started this November. I, I usually grow a beard in November for no shave November, and uh, this year I kept it a little bit longer. And now with COVID, I've just uh, decided to hang on to it until uh, we're all free to go back about our normal daily lives. Man, hopefully that's soon. I don't know, Bill. Like to your point, I, I don't know where the time goes because again, I'm the same age as you, and I lived it. And I don't want to be that get off my lawn. I'm a boomer. Shut the hell up. But I, I don't know where the time goes, and I'm not. I'm not negative on it. I mean, there's a lot to look forward to. There's a great life ahead of us. But, man, that clock spins fast. Is there any way to slow it down? Uh, unfortunately, no. But we got to do the best to, to stay in shape, to take advantage of our bodies while they function properly as long as we can, eat right, and be healthy. And especially in times like today with COVID running around, uh, you know, just stay safe and do what you can. Because I'm not, you know, obviously not everyone's going to get really sick, but the people that do, it's, it's, that's a tragedy. And we have to all have to do our best to keep everybody safe. It is such a good message. Listen, Bill, I appreciate the visit so much. It is so great to get caught up. It's great to hear your voice. And thank you so much for doing that. That was a blast. Uh, Roby, thanks a lot. Always a pleasure, my friend. Anytime.
Huge thanks to Bill Wennington for his time and his insight. What a blast that was. Great to run him down, especially at this time. Now, if you dug that conversation, then trust me when I tell you there is a lot more where that came from. This is what we do around here. Long form, thoughtful, deep dives, 129 of them to be exact. So make sure you get yourself subscribed so you never miss a future episode. Next week, we change up completely. Brandon Boyd of Incubus and even more importantly of Calabasas High School will be by for episode 130. It is going to be awesome. I can't wait for that. In the meantime, I've got a fresh batch of your voicemails. That's it for me. Nice to know you. Goodbye. First new message. Hi, Tim. It's Bella B in Calgary. There was an old lady who lived in a shoe. She called up Jim Rome with a lame take or two. She fumbled and bumbled her way through her script. Matter of time before that golden ticket is ripped. Message saved. Next message. Romy, Tim in Houston. I'm out with the pups doing the daily walk. I pop on the Brooks podcast. And I got a beef. My beef is that's not enough. So it's over and I'm banging on my phone going, whoa, whoa, whoa. Did something stop? Did something miss? Am I out of battery? Dude, that's way too short. You got to get him back on. And let me tell you, he's all that's right with golf. Not only is he what's great for golf, he's great for life. Keep it up. Get his ass back in your chair fast. Late. Message saved. Next message. Hey, Jim Rome, it's Scott Stamp. I just miss my Marlins so dearly. I miss them strikeout bases and noble plays. What am I going to do without my Marlins? I just don't know. I'm just going to sit here and cry in the bayou, I guess. Hold me now. Message deleted. Next message. From Kansas City to Tecama, Nebraska to Omaha, you're welcome. Jim, I just thought I'd let you know that I think all the mothers in the world are great. And it's a great happy Mother's Day. And I'm turning into Hulk Hogan from Rick and Buffalo. But we're going to transition over to the BIC. And, Jim, that horrible impression of Hulk Hogan that Rick and Buffalo was attempting was terrible. So it's probably why I'm with his mom and he's with no one right now. Jim, I don't know if you know, but it is Mother's Day. And I am celebrating with all of your mothers. And I will continue to do so until you are all returning to your homes in their basement. Message deleted. Next message. Brian Goonhead and Matt LaGeorge. Y'all call yourselves trying to send Aaron a message by dressing a quarterback who still needs his diaper to be changed? Well, I got one for y'all. Y'all need to shut up, bow down to Aaron, kiss his ass until y'all get shit sick. You're not worthy. Message deleted. Next message. Hey, Jim. It's Brooks Kepka here. Just following up from our interview, uh, at the end of my day, I figured I'd give you a call and leave you a voicemail at the, you know, at the end of my day, at, at the end of your day as well. And then at the end of the day, it's, I just thought it was a solid interview overall. I feel like we should do it again real soon. And at the end of that day, we should also recap and just do another one right after that at the end of that day, at the end of the day. So at the end of the day, I feel solid. I feel like my game is right where I want to be, my podcast game. And at the end of the day, uh, it's the end of the day. And, you know, at the end of that day, which is today, the end of the day. Message deleted. You have no more messages.